2: This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
3: And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night.
2: So uh, how old were you when you had your first job. Well, I'm ignoring the fact that you're holding a dog right now. <laughs> this is a new part of the podcast.
3: Tune in to YouTube. I
2: guess I guess I'm not ignoring it anymore.
3: Um, my first job was delivering newspapers, actually. But um, in terms of like full-time jobs, I guess I really started working during the summers when I was in college when I had a few different reporting jobs for different publications. How about you?
2: Delivering newspapers? That's uh, so <laughs> leave it I to know. Beaver. It's very nice. Mixed with being in Washington, and area. Okay, that's cool. I I mean, you know, I mowed lawns. Uh, I mowed Mrs. Aiken's lawn. I think she paid me like five bucks. It was filled with dog poop. It was really difficult, not very much fun. Uh, I painted houses when I was like a a sophomore in high school. And then, you know, I, I did work study in college and I worked on fishing boats, of course. I think we've talked about that on the show. But my jobs were all very weird.
3: Your jobs were, were uh, yeah, different than mine. Um, your, your jobs sound like fun. I mean, especially when you've talked about fishing in the past, that, that has sounded like fun. It was fun.
2: Yeah, it was fun. But, you know, things have changed since uh, back in the day and the k- kinds of jobs that kids can get. I mean, the reason I was, you know, <laughs> mowing lawns is like, I wasn't supposed to be working in a factory. Um, So the kind of jobs that kids can get has really expanded recently.
3: Yeah, and not at all in a good way, because uh, as recent investigations by the New York Times show, an increasing number of children have been working dangerous jobs in the United States, for example, food packing and construction, uh, and they're doing it well beyond the hours we would consider acceptable in violation of child labor laws. But I thought we had laws that were supposed to take care of this problem. I mean, that's one of the things that works here. It's supposed to be one of the things that works here. The U.S. has long been one of the best countries in the world in terms of child labor protections. But now that seems like it's at risk because of guess who? Big surprise, Republicans. A good number of the child workers I am talking about have migrated from other countries. And many states, of course, uh, mostly Republican-controlled states, have recently changed laws that were originally designed to protect child workers. And there is more such legislation waiting in the wings.
2: Well, fortunately, we have an expert here today to discuss child labor and writing about child labor, the novelist Jean Kwok. Jean is the New York Times and internationally bestselling author of Girl in Translation and Mambo in Chinatown. Her novel Searching for Sylvia Lee was a read with Jenna Today show pick. Her her work has been published in 20 countries and taught in universities, uh, colleges and high schools across the world. She has been chosen for numerous honors, including the American Library Association Alex Award, the Chinese American Libraries Association Best Book Award, and the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Award uh, International Shortlist. She received her BA from Harvard and earned an MFA at Columbia. She is fluent in Chinese, Dutch, and English and divides her time between the Netherlands and New York City. Her novel, The Leftover Woman, is out in October. Jean, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: So Jean, we invited you to join us in part because you worked in a Chinatown clothing factory as a child and have written fiction, of course, including child workers. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first, we want to tell our listeners why we're talking about this right now. So over the past year or so, the GOP has been pushing to loosen child labor laws in places like Iowa, Minnesota, Arkansas and Missouri. And in Iowa, just to take one example, teens are now allowed to work six hours a day up from the earlier limit of four, and they've expanded the kinds of work children are allowed to do. So if you're 14 or 15, you can now work in a freezer or meat cooler, and 16- and 17-year-olds can do light assembly work involving explosives. Um Politicians like Iowa State Senator Adrian Dickey was quoted saying, what we're doing is providing them opportunities to have a job during the same time of day that is already allowed to their classmates to participate in extracurricular activities within their school. So he's kind of likening this to, I don't know, being on the tennis team. Seems like a different thing. Like a Dickensian (laughs) villain there. Yeah. So proponents of this kind of legislation claim that they want to open up opportunities for young people to gain experience and income. They're portraying it as, like, super wholesome. Um, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what does having these looser or fewer child labor regulations have to do with what some people are calling a current labor shortage and what other people have maybe termed a wage shortage? And, and what will happen to children if this broad push to loosen child labor laws and regulations is successful?
1: Well, I mean, as somebody who really did work in a Chinatown clothing factory for most of my childhood, I can tell you that there's actually quite a big difference between extracurricular activities and working uh, for a wage in something like a factory. You know, I mean, just to kind of backtrack a little bit, you know, we have laws um, and laws are already not always followed. So The fact that a law exists is no guarantee that children will be protected by that law, but it will at least give you something, right? It will give you a kind of framework within which you can work so that people can say, well, this, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening and it shouldn't be happening. And our legal system says that it shouldn't be happening. It may well happen anyway, but at least there would be a legal recourse, um, If you take away that protection or you make the protection much weaker, you have a very, very different situation in which children are absolutely at risk. And, you know, I'm an adult now and I'm a fairly well-integrated adult. And yet, if we are to talk about extracurriculars and the difference between extracurriculars and working, I worked my entire life and yet, you know, there are all kinds of things I do not know how to do. Like I cannot swim, because I did not take extracurricular activities. I did not learn to play the piano, because there was no money for extracurriculars. I did not, um, you know, I have problems. I can't drive. And I think a part of that is also based on not having grown up in a situation where I was in a car a lot, where I had adults who were able to drive, who had a vehicle I had access to regularly um, in my house. You know, there are like many, many things that I constantly realize I actually cannot do that most adults can do because of my lack of extracurricular abilities uh, and training when I was growing up and I spent all of that time working in a factory. So I would say that there is a huge difference between working for a wage and doing things that are supposed to enrich your life.
2: I mean one part of this issue also is You, as you mentioned here, enforcement—you know—the Guardian reported that it's 37% increase in violations of child labor laws in 2022. Uh, most of them pertaining to child migrant workers. I'm trying to figure out the, how this, the migrant angle of this plays in here, because part of this—tell me if I, if this is—I thought that, for instance, in a place like Arkansas, where you have a conservative governor who's who's expanding this, I feel like the conservatives are doing this because they don't want more migrant labor. And they want to make it possible for more American children to work, but then there 's this other angle where they are also migrants are being exploited by these by these uh, extended work obligations so what what is happening there
1: you know it 's really hard to say. Um, I think that what I can speak to is that I think that migrant children are particularly vulnerable, um, just as any working class child is in a family that is not affluent. And what I mean by that is that when I was growing up, we were legal immigrants, but we were very poor. And because we were very poor, um, I went with my family to work in the clothing factory, not because they wanted the money from my extra work, although I mean, I'm sure that helped. But that was absolutely not the main reason. The main reason was that we lived in an unheated uh vermin infested apartment in new york city and there was nobody who was old enough to look after a child who could be excused from work and you know everybody who was able to work basically had to work 24/7 in order to make ends meet in order to pay our bills in order to put food on the table and nobody could be spared to watch a young kid at home And so my being taken along was not really my parents trying to exploit me. It was really just that they had no choice because of the economic situation they found themselves in. And I think that people who are poor, who are migrants, are in a particularly difficult place with their backs up against the wall um, when they're dealing with their children because of their situation.
3: Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So it seems like one of the things that's going on here um, is that so about a quarter million in the past two years, about a quarter million migrant children have come to the United States without their parents, without adult, um, without adult companions. And those children seem uniquely vulnerable to this kind of exploitation in part because they are supposed to right, maybe be sponsored. And then in some cases, the sponsors are people who are taking advantage of them. And so... Um, We'll put this in our show notes for our listeners. But the New York Times reporter Hannah Dreyer, whose beat this is, she went to 20 states and interviewed about 100 children about the conditions they face, and some of the things that that um, are in the stories are specifically about. Um, people, for example, saying that they will sponsor children, but sort of making an exchange for labor. And then she also describes, um, you know, 12 year old roofers in Florida, underage slaughterhouse workers in Delaware and Mississippi, and North Carolina, children sawing planks of wood and overnight shifts in South Dakota, people dropping out of school. So this is obviously like physically very dangerous work. And then also kind of what you're describing, there's this when someone comes into the United States unaccompanied, then the state is saying, like, you have to have a guardian, you have to have, you have to be in a state sanctioned environment. But then between when the state says that and when the person actually goes to their sponsor, it seems like there's extraordinarily little oversight of what it is that sponsors are doing with children.
1: Right. I mean that that just sounds so dangerous um, and so awful for those kids. And I think that, you know, there's so much room indeed for children to be used and exploited, especially by people who are, you know, maybe not necessarily bonded to them. And like, you can't, of course, say you can't paint everyone with one brush, right? I, I'm sure there are very caring people who are not out to do that. Um, but the fact is that if you change the law, you open up this ability, right? You open up this possible um, vulnerability point where certain types of people can say, well, you know, that's a way I could use someone else. Um, And I think that children are, of course, especially vulnerable to that. And a migrant, of course, you have a language issue, you're separated from your family, you're confused, you don't know what's right, you don't know what's wrong. I mean, with us, you know, even as legal immigrants, we were very confused by whether or not our situation was normal. You think, well, maybe everyone lives like this, you know, you are in a small environment. And Even people who you should be able to trust can treat you in ways when you are powerless that are abominable. And um, the good thing is, you know, there are also people who will come forth and actually treat you well and decently, even though they have nothing to gain from you. But absolutely, I have been in that position of not being uh, in power and not having the knowledge to know how things were supposed to be and having people absolutely take advantage of that to have you do labor for a low wage um, so that they can benefit and profit from you.
2: And we're going to ask you to read from your book in a minute, which gives a very clear depiction of what it is like to be in that situation. but I, And I, we didn't bring you on the show to explain logical discontinuities in the Republican position, but I'm going to try to figure something out, okay? like We have full employment, very, very low employment right now, which causes inflation whichever, and which causes wages to go up, which I think is a good thing. The one way you could get away from uh, this would be to have more immigration, to get more workers into the country, which would lower wages. The Republicans don't like that and want to prevent immigration because they want the jobs to go to Americans, but at the same time don't like inflation. And so why expand labor laws for children of migrants so they can work more? That just doesn't make, I don't understand what they're doing. Suki, do you understand this? Does this make sense to you?
3: (laughs) I mean, if it made sense to me, I wouldn't have wanted to do that episode. Um, I have been sitting around. Do you see
2: what I'm talking about here? There's a logical. No, yes, I absolutely. I, I don't get it.
3: No, it's very confusing because it's like, who exactly do they want to work? Because it doesn't seem yeah. like they want migrants. And it doesn't seem but like the, they except want except for to... the kids, we'll do the kids. Right. I mean, it just really doesn't follow. And then when you listen to the rhetoric of the politicians being quoted about it, they are sort of saying things like, oh, but what about the family farm? Or You know, like, de- how, like Democrats, for example, right now are trying to change um, the laws related to farm labor as one sort of countermeasure for this. And then other people are sort of like, but what about... What about the family tradition? Um, I don't know. Just the rhetoric of this feels to me all mixed up. I don't know. Maybe it's like trying to make a situation where it is child migrants who are working, but everyone pretends that that's not the case. And I'm so happy that this reporter seems to have pierced that and and that fiction like yours, Gene exists so that people get a sense of what it is actually like to be a kid working under these conditions. But yeah, I mean, can you explain the Republican Party? (laughs)
2: I think it's maybe I have I'm, okay, I'm going to say that it's like it's it's a little bit reminiscent of our old the old Republican policy toward immigration, which is that we don't like immigration, but we're going to need a lot of it. And we want it because it keeps wages down. So we're going to pretend not to like it, but we're going to allow it. And, and I don't know. There's This is sort of like we do this thing, but we say this thing. We do this other thing. I don't know. Gene, what is does that make any sense to you?
1: Well, I mean, the my only comment in this completely insane situation is that I really believe in paying people better wages. I think that hear, that's hear. one of the things that we can, yes, one of the things that we can do to improve living conditions for everyone in this country. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that's difficult about migrant labor and child labor is that sometimes, um, for example, in my situation, being brought to the factory was better than not being brought to the factory, and the factory actually helped us in the in the fact that it existed and it gave us a way to live and to make a wage, and yes, the conditions were atrocious, but we still earned some money there. And um, and that's the problem, right? The problem is that if the adults can barely make a living doing what they're doing, then you bring children into danger, you bring the adults into danger, you have a whole bad chain reaction while if you could pay people a reasonable wage that they so that they could live and that they could live in safe environments and pay for their family what happens is you break that chain and you know you create a safe environment for children to grow up in so that they can stay in the educational system grow up to become worthy citizens who are going to contribute to society And I think that's something that benefits all of us.
3: So Jean, the protagonist of your first novel, Girl in Translation, Kimberly Chang, is an immigrant kid who finds herself in situations similar to the ones that we're discussing. And I wonder if you would read to us from the book.
1: Yes, of course, I would love to. So I will read to you from a section in which um, they're in the factory and the inspectors are coming because... In my book, these working conditions are illegal. Um, The inspectors are coming. The inspectors are coming. Aunt Paula looked as flustered as I'd ever seen her. She and Uncle Bob hurried through the factory as if they'd been caught in a hurricane. They swept clothing off counters, wielded brooms and dusting rags. But most important, they herded the children in front of them and swept them into small secret places. Everyone under 18, out of sight. Aunt Paula grabbed me by the back of my shirt and practically threw me into one of the men's rooms. She slammed the door behind me as I landed against someone's shoulder. We both recoiled from the shock and then I realized it was Matt. Hey, he said, you okay? Before I could answer, the door opened again and three other kids were crammed in with us before the door banged shut again. They were much younger than we were. The little boy had his head wedged into my underarm. The men's room was filthy, with only a toilet and a wash basin. We knew we had to keep the lights out. Matt was jammed in between the wash basin and the wall. The rest of us did our best to avoid the open toilet in the middle of the bathroom, which didn't even have a seat or a cover. To combat my usual painful sensitivity to Matt, I allowed a small girl to squeeze in between us. Even with the girl there, Matt was too close. If he moved his arm a bit, it would almost be as if he could touch me. But the other kids were also there. And now the little boy stuck next to the toilet was staring at it, riveted by its proximity. Don't even think about it. I heard Matt hiss above my head. Hold it. The little boy pressed his legs together, his eyes wide. His clothes were matted with fabric dust. I reached out and brushed his hair with my hand. It'll be all right, I murmured. This will be over before you know it. A taller girl suddenly said, there's a roach moving in the sink. Matt and I both jumped a mile. He leapt away from the wash basin so fast that in a second he had switched places with the little boy on the other side of me probably in an instinctive reaction to get to the door. I giggled to myself, realizing that he was as scared of insects as I was. The boy was now wedged next to the little girl, both of them jammed against the wash basin. He gave both Matt and me a disdainful look, then took a piece of paper out of his pocket and crushed the roach in the sink. I sagged with relief now that it was dead. I kept my eyes closed. Matt smelled of sweat an aftershave and his chest was hard. I thought I could feel the thud of his heart underneath his thin t-shirt. They must have yanked him away from the steamers. Yet now that I had no choice but to stand there pressed against him, I could feel myself beginning to relax. Suddenly he gave a strangled cry and I looked up. In the shadows that child was dangling the piece of paper in front of us. I thought I could see the roach antennae waving above the tissue and the boy was grinning like a maniac. Caught by surprise, I screamed. Despite my daily exposure to roaches in our apartment, I was still as terrified of them as I had been at the beginning, probably even more so. There was immediately thumping on the door. It was Uncle Bob's voice. Shut up in there. They're almost in this area. At this we all froze. Outside, we heard obsequious voices, and even the hum of the machines seemed more subdued than usual. I could tell they were speaking English, although I couldn't make out the words. We didn't dare breathe for fear we would be found out. Everyone knew the way Chinatown worked. Money had probably already changed hands to ensure a casual inspection, but we were still as afraid of being found out as the owners. If the factory was closed down, who would fill our rice bowls then?
2: Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Thank you very much. That's a great passage. I don't normally, I try to avoid like saying, and so your life is the book, right? I mean, you know, I've, there's artistic invention in all things, right? But you have mentioned earlier in this interview and elsewhere um, that, you know, that you did work, in fact, in a clothing factory in Chinatown, that you went to work with your uh, father. Um, could you talk to, I mean, that, that description, I assume, is is drawn from that experience. But could you talk to us about what an, an, a regular day, a non-inspection day of work looked like for you during that period of time?
1: No, I- Absolutely. And I, I do want to say that, of course, Girl in Translation is a work of fiction, but the factory and the apartment we lived in was is absolutely as accurate as I could make them um, based upon my own memories. So I don't mind um, saying that those parts of the book are really as true to life as I could remember them, even though the specific events and the characters might have been changed or fictionalized. Um, What my day was like was I was only five when we started working in the factory. And I would get up in the morning, my father would take me to school, to elementary school. I'd go to school and school was... You know, lovely and warm because we lived in an unheated apartment that, you know, in New York City, the window panes were covered with ice on the inside all winter long. I mean, we kept the oven door open day and night just to have a little bit of heat through the winters. Um, we were so cold and we always brought work home from the factory to do a little bit extra that you could hardly get the work done because your fingers were stiff from the cold, despite putting on everything that we owned basically at one time. So school was warm, but I was often sick. Um, I was sick almost all the time as a child because of living under these conditions and working at the factory so much and not getting enough sleep and coming home late. So I'd go to school, which was a relief, and then my father would pick me up after school and he'd take me to the factory. All of my homework, all of my studying, everything had to be done during the subway ride to the factory or during our little breaks at the factory. There was really no other time. Um, once I was at the factory, I would work. I was by far not the only child at the factory. That factory was overrun with children. And, you know, I would, I just never can forget the fabric dust, the amount of dust that was in the air. It was like you were in a cloud of dust all the time. You know, the tables, within a couple of minutes, they'd be covered with a thick layer. And I, we would draw pictures. Um, in the dust when we had a chance and of course we all helped our parents as much as we could then during the breaks we would you know run through the factory for a few minutes and stare at the soda machine longingly um, to thinking about the cold sodas in the machine even though none of us ever had money to actually buy one Um, I would work until probably about nine or ten at night when the factory closed it's late for a little kid My parents would take me home, uh, but my brothers, who were a little bit older than me and were actually teenagers, uh, so the ages of a lot of the children that we're talking about, with the laws being changed, um, they would actually go on to a second job, waiting tables at a restaurant until two or three in the morning. And um, they would get home in the middle of the night. They'd sleep a couple of hours. Then they'd wake up. And they do it all again, they'd go to high school, and they would deal with SATs and standardized tests and papers and social norms and all of those things, while really spending a huge amount of their life um,
3: working outside of school. So in the book, um, there is this moment where Kimberly is talking to one of her friends and tells her what her life is like, and essentially isn't believed. And I'm just curious, you know, to what extent was this factory life sort of a bubble of the people living in it? And to what extent did others, say teachers or neighbors or friends at school, know what was going on? No
1: one knew. I mean, absolutely no one knew. And the um, that incident in Girl in Translation in which Kimberly does tell her friend and is not believed is based on my own life in which I told my friend uh, who said you know I call you after school and you're never there why are you never there after school and I said well you know because I'm working in a factory and she went home and she asked her father a Yale educated lawyer about it and he you know told her I was lying Um, And she came back the next day and said, what you said isn't true because kids don't work in factories in America. So I learned from a very young age to keep my mouth shut. And I think that it's a combination of not being believed and being ashamed. You know that other people don't have lives like this, although many of them do, right? Many of, so many more do than you would think. Um, but most people don't seem to have lives like this. And when you grow up, and if you're lucky enough to move away from that life, to kind of leave the circle of life that is the factory, most people are too ashamed to talk about it or too relieved, right? And you just think, God, that was such a horrible period. I do not want to think about it. I just want to move on and forget about this part of my past.
3: One other thing that I want to touch on that is depicted in the book and that we haven't talked about here, and that I'm not sure the extent to which it exists in the current working environment, there's sort of – there's a relationship between the apartment and the factory in that the apartment is kind of arranged by the same person who has arranged for the job. and so. I have a friend who who studies um, tea plantation workers in Sri Lanka, where many of them work in line rooms that are on the plantations themselves. And so their labor is tied to where they live. Their wages are sometimes garnished for various reasons. And something very similar is happening in the book. And, and just thinking about, right, like Kimberly is sort of, she's at the mercy of people who have decided the conditions under which she will live and is not sure of the agency that she has to move out of that space. And is that was it common for people to be living in circumstances that were arranged by the factories
2: okay we 're going to take a short break here, and we 'll be right back
1: um yes, yes, and i you know, I am not an expert I, you know i 'm not a journalist who 's done in depth research in this, but I can tell you that just from Hearsay and from being connected to that world and to knowing people in that world, you know, I have a new novel coming out, The Leftover Woman. And in the research for that, I looked into, um, you know, living conditions for undocumented immigrants in the US today who are working, for example, in restaurants in um, Chinatown. And it's from what I understood from my research, uh, talking to people, it's very common. That they would actually be placed in the same living conditions, that they are placed in a sort of house that's arranged by the people who have lent them the money to come, who are expecting to be repaid for the money um, that has been lent, and that you know, that they live under these very difficult, very cramped um conditions, where, you know, people can keep an eye on them, and they are sent to work at this place, you know, and when that place's work runs out for seasonal reasons, or whatever, they are bust somewhere else, and they can work there, for example.
2: It's a little bit like urban sharecropping. Um, You know, you said earlier that uh, a lot of people don't like to talk about this, even after they leave this life, because it's embarrassing. But you have now written a book that read by hundreds of thousands or millions of people. So you got over that at some point. Uh, What was the most difficult part of writing this book, the most difficult scenes to write for you?
1: Well, you know, you bring up a good point because I actually um, had a really hard time getting over that. And that was why I wrote the book as fiction. uh, And... I wrote as a literary fiction thinking that, well, five people in the world are going to read this book and nobody is ever, ever going to ask me, is this based on your own life? And of course, the book became an international bestseller and everyone asked me, is this based on your own life? And by that time, you know, it had already been kind of a sensation from the moment it hit the publishing house before it was ever released to the public. And, you know, there was an executive at Penguin Random House who burst into tears while presenting the book and said, this was my life. You know, this was what I did as a child. And I've actually just not seen this depicted in fiction before. And now I can let my loved ones know what my childhood was actually really like. So I understood that a part of the book was my being brave enough to stand up and say actually this can happen that's the question right is this something that you completely made up or is it something that actually is possible in the united states of america and i felt it was important to say yes Yes, it is. So that was a part of my own journey, but indeed, you know, the first time I gave a talk about this was in New York City in front of many friends who had gone to high school and college with me, and you know, I started talking about how this was based on my own life and you could have just see those jaws drop in the room because I did not tell anyone. I didn't tell my friends, I didn't tell my teachers, I didn't tell my boyfriends, uh, people I was engaged to. I did not tell anyone um, until the book came out. And then I felt I had to, I had to talk about it. Um, I think that in terms of writing about the book, one of the hardest things for me was to write about the experiences of my mother and my parents because um, I am a mom myself now. And it just really brought home how difficult it is for the older generation to expose their children to this kind of vulnerability and difficulty and loss. And it made me realize how hard it would be for me if I had no choice but to subject my children to these awful living and working conditions um, because, you know, it was the only way we could survive. And that was, I think, the most heartbreaking part of it for me.
3: So, Jean, we've been talking about child labor and your past work today, but you did mention earlier your forthcoming book, The Leftover Woman. And I wonder if just to to close us out, if you would tell us a little bit more about what we can look forward to with that book.
1: Yeah, well, I'm really excited about my new book that's coming out on October 10th. Um, the Leftover Woman is about a young woman in China named Jasmine, who grieves when she is told that her baby died shortly after birth. But she finds out a couple of years later that actually her daughter had not died, but had been given away by her husband to a wealthy American couple in New York City for adoption, another casualty of China's one child policy. And when the book opens, Jasmine has followed um, her child to New York City to get her daughter back. So the book is about, you know, really an undocumented immigrant Jasmine, a mother uh, who desperately loves her child and, you under very difficult circumstances, is trying to get her back. But it's also about Rebecca, the adoptive mother, who is wealthy and has a seemingly perfect life that soon crumbles, uh, and who makes a lot of mistakes, but very, very much adores her adopted Chinese daughter.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to it, um, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Uh, and uh, don't miss Leftover Women, which comes out, as Jean just said, October 10th. And check out all of her other books. And we thank you for being with us today.
3: We really appreciate it. Thank you
1: so much for having me. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Shri Zendine and Ann Kniggendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing "fiction slash non slash fiction" into the search bar of your favorite podcast app, and please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com. The Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. Also check out our website at fnfpodcast.net, where you can find our back episodes grouped by topic areas. We'll post a link of the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNFTalk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview on our Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube and IGTV channels. We'll provide links to all this in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading!